I'm here with my buddy Greg, and um, we thought it'd be really fun to sit down and really talk about the e-motorcycle future. We know they're coming. Um, Greg has some incredible insight. He's probably one of the few people I know who knows more about motorcycles than I do, so he's great fun to talk to. And we were just going to like go through the future of motorcycles, which is probably electric. And I thought it'd be fun to uh, first talk about some of the advantages of e-motorcycle, right? Because we always, you know, the thing with batteries, we're always talking about like energy density and things like that and how far we can go. But I don't think that's really where the advantages of e-motorcycles are right now. I mean, I for me, it's like when I think of uh, electric motorcycles, you know, the, the type of benefits that we start seeing, you know, early on are, are um, you know, Obviously, noise becomes like a really, really big issue, especially when you're in a in an urban setting with you know your neighbors. You want to be respectful to them, but also when you think about things like racetracks and the, the areas that we're allowed to ride off road, right? So it keeps getting pushed farther and farther and farther from the city centers. But if there's some way that we could actually have like some hope of bringing those centers back, it would be a fantastic way, right? Because if you have something that's whisper quiet, um, you know, uh, uh, Laguna Seca you can't run aftermarket pipes over there because it's just too loud. Right. And imagine if instead of having to swap out, you know, your pipes every single time or getting, you know, flagged because your exhaust is too loud, what if it's just not even a worry and you could just go full speed, right? So, I mean, I think that there's actually a lot of benefits to it, right? We can kind of keep our hearing and stuff. We can actually start hearing the things that are around us, but, you know, I don't know if you've ridden an electric bike where you can even hear the gravel, like under the tires and stuff. And it's actually strangely, you know, for me, like I love gas, but at the same time, I also couldn't understand the, the appeal of going electric and being able to just, you know, ride anywhere and actually hear, you could hear like birds sing, right? You can hear everything around you and just actually being really alert and, and under like knowing like what's going on around you. It's just a, it's a different level of, of of a experience that you're going to have with an electric motorcycle. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big mountain bike guy. And so I'm going to, e-bikes e have been around for quite a bit longer. And, and a lot of my context for my thoughts come from my experience with e-bikes. And, you know, the mountain bike thing, a big reason why I do that more than dirt bikes is access. There's not many motorized trails here. And the silence is fantastic. It's spectacular. Like when you're thinking about your grip and you can hear what the front tire is doing yeah right you you actually have you're more informed in your decision making process because you can hear how much grip you have but from the e-moto side of thing you know i hate and i'm a motorcycle guy i hate being out there in the mountains you know and the birds and all you can hear in the distance is yeah right it's it's obnoxious yeah. and i think e e-moto could potentially save off-roading Right, because when I was Forest Service for several years, I worked for the Forest Service. That was the number one complaint we got was people hated the noise of the dirt bikes. Now imagine if you take that away. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, I think there's all there. There are always going to be people who are pushing back against you know people who want to enjoy that you know that sport and stuff like that. But if we're able to take that, you know, that's a pretty big argument against it. And if you're able to take that away from them, I think it's actually a really big win for for motorcycles. You know, gasoline. And a lot of people don't really think about this. Every time I bring it up, people are like, oh, yeah. Every time you leave your garage, you're leaving with a full tank of gas. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? Like, and that's, think about that. That's nice. Yeah, I think, you know, it's like the, it's almost like once you start getting to that habit, you just kind of come home and you plug it in. And it just becomes automatic where 
you know, for most day to day, you're not even thinking about refueling, right? Or like topping it back off. If, if you can just kind of like leave with a full tank of gas and, and, and you're taking off doing your thing, you come back. Now, if you're doing touring, of course, that's like a different thing. But like, I think for a lot of that, you know, the people who are just going for like these, uh, you know, going to a bike night when they're going commuting and stuff, right? Um, I think it's actually a perfect solution for that. Right. And a lot of the commuting, this is kind of interesting too, like you're not really going that fast. Right. And, and um, I reached out to one of our Discord members has a, a zero. And I asked her, like, what are some of your thoughts on the zero? And, and she, I never thought about it. And she was like, when you're in traffic, you're using less battery. So you worry less. And she said, like, the range anxiety in reality was far less than what she thought it was going to be going into it. Because, you know, she's in, she's in California, mm-hmm. you know. And she's like, man, she's like, I'll ride all day and still have half a battery left over. That's actually something that I, even, I haven't even, like, considered. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because... Yeah, like a lot of that stop and go, especially like California or the guys over in New York City, you know, who are stuck in traffic and stuff like that, and they're not able to filter through. You know, it's like, I think that they're going to feel that the most, right? So yeah, that that's actually a huge advantage. I mean, yeah, it's like, I'm trying to think like what I, what I really think about like the range anxiety and stuff, you know? I mean, I, you know, I write a lot and I mean, I just kind of wonder how much that range anxiety is actually warranted for a lot of people, right? Like, you know, sometimes we just have like these, sometimes we have anxiety from something that really isn't like that big of a deal in Scout, right? So I just kind of wonder like how many people are actually riding, you know, more than 200 miles a day, right? I don't know what it is in LA, but if I'm going for a week, a day ride, right? And take off with my buddies on the day ride. We're talking like, this is Utah, big and expansive. I have to go a long ways to get to anywhere. 150 miles over the day. Yeah. You know, like, and it's now touring's a different ball of wax. And that's, you know, I don't know if electric is ready for that charging. You know, we all watched Long Way Up with the live wires. And like the first half of that series was just them them trying to get to the next plug, you know, and even like Ewan makes the joke. You're like, join us next week for, you know, (laughs) mileage and speed because they had to ride so slow. Yeah. In the cold. Yeah. Yeah. So. But it's still like, even, even with that, you know, it's like the technology is getting faster with the charging, but then also the infrastructure is getting better every single day. So, I mean, it's one of those arguments, you know, against uh, electric motorcycles that I think kind of loses power like day by day, right? Because the technology is getting better. The infrastructure is getting better every single day. It just seems to have like a little bit, it seems like that argument becomes a little less potent, you know, every single day. So. I agree. I don't think it's there yet, but um, do I think it's eventually going to get there? I do. Oh, yeah. I think it's it's invariable. You know, like Toyota just came out and announced that they found a way to make solid state batteries um, mass produce them reasonably. Right. And, you know, looking at the car model, you know, a lithium ion, which is a gel. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have kind of these challenges. You can only charge it so fast because it's a chemical reaction. You know, we're going to go from, you know, 300 mile range at best that takes what? six hours depending on the charger to charge mm-hmm. affected by cold we're gonna go to solid state they're gonna weigh half as much have double the range and you can charge them in 10 minutes right that's what they're saying they're yeah. doing it's gonna get to the point where why wouldn't i get an electric car right i don't have oil changes i don't have to get gas you know i, I change tires and even brake pads don't wear out that much because you're using regen all the time yeah. so it's coming whether you want it or not because it's going to be better it's yeah. and if you've driven an electric car you put your foot in it 
it's it's a giggle. You have a hard time not laughing every time because they just all that torque right off the bottom is a is a pardon the pun a gas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think solid state batteries are, are that's really going to be the tipping point for electric motorcycles. Where right now it feels like you know it's a it's a pretty niche down community of people who are really hardcore about it. But I think for it to actually get wider adoption, I think it's going to take that solid state battery. But I think once it does get to that point, you know, we're going to have fast charge times where it really, it becomes indistinguishable, you know, with the times that it takes to refuel. And I think you're going to have the kind of ranges that, you know, no one's going to complain about anymore. Right. Yeah. I can't, it takes me longer than 10 minutes to fill up at the gas station to drive 300 miles. Yeah. Right. The difference is I can do that successively as opposed to electric it's, you know, it's harder to do that as you go. But if you can do 700 miles on a 10 minute thing, who cares? Yeah. Right. Like I don't want to drive that far in a day. Yeah. And I mean, you made like another great point about like just the maintenance of it. Right. I mean, uh, just kind of going back to the advantages of electric motorcycles, you know, just having that, the lack of, you know, just stuff that you have to do. Right. It's like, I know that there are a lot of guys who take a lot of pride in, you know, renting themselves like, hey, I own like a two-stroke or something, and like, you know, I redo like. See the dudes at the track, like they're changing their their transmission cassette between sessions. Those guys are crazy. Yeah. You know, they know they're crazy. They lean into it. Yeah, they're not the norm. No, they're not the norm. I don't think when I when I look at the younger customer as well, I think that there's less of an affinity for that as well, and so I think that they just want to get on a ride. You know. And not to say that they're all against, you know, renting or anything like that. But, you know, even if you do like renting, are you really going to complain if there's less maintenance to do? You know, like if you don't have to change the oil, if you don't have to, you know, do all those little things that kind of keep the bike like running tip top. Sure. Well, and all the time, like neighbors, like this garage, right? People are, oh, you love working on motorcycles. My nephew has a motorcycle and it's like, I don't love working on motorcycles. It's just a thing I have to do to keep riding them. I love riding them. Maintenance is just kind of the price you pay. Yeah. And take away that cost, take away that time, that time investment. The you know, oil isn't cheap. The, yeah. There's brake pads, you know, fork service, like all these things. They, it's time valve adjustments. Imagine no more valve adjustments. What is a valve adjustment on a Ducati now? Runs close to two thousand dollars. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, I I think it's also peace of mind, right? Because if you're having to stay on top of that stuff all the time, it kind of runs in the back of my mind just a little bit. It's like, man, am I getting close to that valve adjustment? You know, it's like, am I, am I coming close to that, that mileage? So just not having to worry about all those little things, I think just makes for a more enjoyable sport, right? So I agree. Like, I think Emoto, like, you know, we're seeing like a lot of pushback at the same time, right? Because I think that when you look at, you know, all the, the industries that sort of um, depend on gas. But, you know, we could talk about some of the cool e-motos coming out, right? Yeah. And I think this is kind of interesting because you look at the marketing of, of e-motorcycle, and I think there's two distinct thoughts that I'm observing out there, mm-hmm. is you have kind of like the live wire thing, right? We're going to make this pinnacle product. It's like the Tesla model, right? It's expensive. It's exclusive, Right. But then you have some of these other companies, I'm thinking like the Sondors, right? And the Sondors is made by people who don't ride motorcycles and they're making it and marketing it to a very different demographic, you know, for, they don't have the expectation of it needs to weigh less than, you know, needs to weigh 400 pounds and make 200 horsepower, right? They don't care, you know, totally different demographic. And I think that's interesting. And there's some very different motorcycles 
each kind of like trying to go after those different niches. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of entering into this, it's a really overused phrase, but this really is a paradigm shift where we're taking, um, you know, you're looking at the traditional customer and this is something that we talked about in our last chat and that, you know, we have the traditional customer, you know, if you look at the average age of the, the motorcycle rider, you know, it's getting a little bit older and, um, you know, a lot of those guys who are older, they have the money, but they just don't want an electric motorcycle, right? They want the gas, they want the sound. And then you have the other side where it's like, you know, maybe you have like a slightly younger rider, um, you know, they're still coming up. They maybe don't quite have the scratch to get an like electric motorcycle that is like, you know, kind of proper, right? And the the question right now is like for us, like in the industry, like, you know, how are we going to attack it? So like you were saying, like from the the one side, you see what Livewire is doing where they're, they're trying to go top down. And I just kind of wonder like if they're not taking like the harder route, right? Yeah. Because yeah. They're going for a customer that's just so like, you know, gas is in their blood, right? And it's like, these guys just are really sort of like resisting the idea of it. And I think that they're, they're I mean, I hats off to them for trying it, but I think they're taking a, a harder path to it. I personally think that it's probably gonna be bottom up, maybe something more like a Sondors or some of these other, you know, brands that are kind of coming up. Like we were talking about Suron, you know, earlier. And I think that Suron, you know, that seems to have a lot of appeal with, with younger people, with a younger customer. They're cheap. They're $3,000. They're cheaper than an email. They're accessible. Yeah. yeah. And they're cool. They're yeah. fun to ride. They're, yeah. I think it's, I mean, for me, I don't, I don't fault anyone who's on two wheels. You know, it's like, and I don't even care what they ride because I think for me, like what's more important right now is just to see people out there riding it and stuff like that, right? Because it's such a, like, it, my friend, my friend Dave Law, Shout out to him. Um, he, he used to always tell me, he's like, Greg, motorcycle industry, we have like the easiest job in the world. We are selling like the coolest objects on the planet. Like this should be easy, right? And I, you know, for me, the biggest thing is this. In order to sell a bike, you first have to get them to ride it, right? right? And it's, you could talk on and on about it and it's just never gonna get someone to throw a leg over until like, you, you almost have to force them to just try it and then you can't get them off. Right. And as long as people are getting on bikes, I don't care if it's gas, electric, you know, whatever it is, um, I think that's the important part so that we can all just share in the joy of it. But I mean, you know, the more people that are in it, you know, we're going to have uh, more paths, you know, we're going to have more resources. There are going to be more stores that support us. Right. The larger the community that we have is going to be actually better for everybody. Right. You know, so I'm I'm excited to see like young people coming into it, because to be honest, the last 20 years, like. Well, last 15 years, really. Yes, until eight. Basically, everything stopped in 08. It really did, man. Like, it did a number, like, especially on the younger customers. Like, it really, really cut it down, you know? And we, we just haven't seen, like, those customers rushing back, you know? So if this is the way that we get them into it, um, I'm in it. You know, it's like, I support it. Well, and you're a design guy, right? And some of these designs, I think, well, one of the bigger criticisms I get on our Discord server is how come e-motorcycles don't look like motorcycles? How come they look so weird? But then you look at like the Livewire, they have that new Del Mar that, that they're releasing. Yeah. That looks like a motorcycle. I think that thing looks super, super cool. Yeah, I, I've got two ways that I feel about it. So you're going to have the bikes that look like a traditional motorcycle, and that's going to be really great for the guys who are more traditional, right? But I do think that, you know, you got the packaging of a motorcycle. You have this gas engine and the gas tank and all these other bits that go along with it. You know, you've got this large airbox, 
and they've optimized it over decades, right? It's like over a hundred years, like they've been optimizing that shape, right? And it's really optimized for a gas engine. And I just kind of wonder like, is this the best package that we have for electric? You know, you have all these different parts and like, you know, it's like the frame was sort of like, it was, it evolves over time to fit like a gas drivetrain, right? So I, on the one side, you have the people who have, you know, they've actually invested a lot of time uh, in the writing technique, right? They have a lot of familiarity with something that is, you know, it's like that could be dangerous, like in the wrong hands and stuff. And so it's like, for those guys, I can totally understand, like, you know, if you change it too drastically, they're going to resist, right? Because they really want something that, you know, they can take their skill set and they can apply it to this new thing, right? So that's super important. But I do think the flip side, like you've got like these young kids that are coming up and you have these new customers coming into the market who don't have that foundation, right? And so for them, like, does it matter that it looks like a traditional bike? And I just don't know if it does, right? Actually, you know, it, it's, it's that thing about, uh, you know, a lot of times you want the opposite of what your dad has. My dad's a Harley guy. There's yeah. not a Harley in here. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's, it, I think that that has a lot to do with it as well is that, you know, the, the fashion that, um, different generations like the, the things that they're into, I think they just sort of naturally just sort of like swing the other way, you know? So, I mean, if they want something different and stuff, let's look at it and just kind of see what it is, because you know what it might, we might actually end up liking it too. Oh, sure. You know, I think that there's a lot of exploration yet to be done. Damon, I think what Damon is doing is really exciting. I don't know if those are come to market yet, but they now have two models. They have the, the sport bike with the, the adjustable ergonomics, the handlebars and the foot pegs adjust. And they just came out with a new like naked street fighter. One of the other designs that I think is, I just love looking at it is that zero SRX that they had like a special design firm kind of come in and just, I, it looks like Robotech, man. I yeah. freaking love it. I mean, it still kind of has some of the traditional motorcycle shapes and designs, but also kind of not, yeah. you know, the little teeny headlight and the, yeah, it's like, I think that, you know, for those guys, what I like is that they're not trying to, they're not trying to force it to look like a traditional bike. I mean, you've got this electric battery that just looks like a big brick. And, you know, we were laughing about it before how it, it almost looks like an ammo box, right? It's like just this huge blocky, like, you know, like sheet metal box, right? Yeah, the live wire, like, it's so obvious in the live wire. You see like the little teeny motor down at the bottom and then this big giant box, and they kind of dressed it up with like a frame and a gas tank, but yeah. it's still based around like an ammo can, a brick. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because like, you know, a lot of people, they still sort of talk about that shape like in the middle as a, as a gas tank and stuff, right? And you just start it, you know, that starts, you know, it's like for me, at least it makes me start thinking. It's like, we still call it a gas tank, you know what I mean? But but then like, you know, so much of like writing technique, you know, depends on the tank and stuff, right? right? What I do, like all the thing, it's how we sit, yep. you know? But if it was shaped different, like if motorcycles all look like Akira, you know, yeah. like if they're all kind of this recumbent thing, right? And maybe for the electric motorcycle design, that recumbent model would work out extraordinarily well. I don't know. Like, it'd be interesting to to explore that, I think. It could, yeah, it could very well. Like, you know, it, we start getting into things like, you know, body position and stuff like that on, on something recumbent. It doesn't, becomes less of a thing because you're not able to move off the seat as much and stuff like that. I mean, I would argue, you know, some cruisers with a feet forward, you know, it's like they're, they're, essentially recumbent you know but like maybe to get truly truly recumbent like a Kara bike and stuff like that that could be really interesting you put a lot of batteries in there and stuff and i you know for me personally 
what I loved about motorcycles, like, you know, it's like 30 years ago, I'm dating myself here, but 30 years ago, I felt like there's so much more exploration on the package. Like, we didn't have wheel size every year. Remember, like the wheel sizes were different. This year it's 16 and a half and that one's got a 19 and like, like, yeah, it was, it was, everything was changing all the time. Yeah. I felt like, you know, so many things were still up for debate, right? So, I mean, those, those early elf, you know, it's like the racing bikes and stuff. I loved those when I was a kid, just because they might've been, you know, some of them were cool, some of them were kind of ugly, but I still liked them just because like, they were so interesting to look at, right? And I feel like right now, like we just have things, it's like, we just assume, you know, it's like, this is how it's gonna be. And I think that's one thing that like, we have to be sort of prepared for is that like, as we have this new drivetrain, a lot of these things that we, that are assumptions now are gonna be challenged. I hope that they are, Yeah. right? If they're not, I'm actually gonna be really uh, disappointed but these assumptions that we have now, like they should be challenged, right? And it might ruffle uh, some feathers, like some people might not like it, but like for me, I'm actually really excited about that idea, right? I really am excited to see like, what crazy new thing are they gonna make? You know, I'm- So a lot of these manufacturers that are coming out, right? They're, they're not necessarily being done by motorcycle companies, right? Like yeah. Livewire with their, I think they're divorced now, I think not divorced, but they, they merged, they split, not yeah. merged. But most of them are, have been done by not motorcycle people, right? You have like the Sondors, which is, you know, tech guys. I don't think, I think uh, um, um, Zero when they started off wasn't necessarily motorcycle people when they started it off. You have BMW, they're making that really cool scooter. I love how it looks, but it's $13,000. Yeah. Um, I, did, I get emails from companies all the time. There's a lot of e-bicycle companies are always emailing me. But I got one recently from a company called Fuel. And I was like, oh, it's just another whatever. It's actually being helmed by Eric Buell, yeah. right? Which I think this yeah. is interesting because he's a very non-traditional guy, right? And they're kind of looking at it in, in kind of a little bit more open way and how they're going to approach this. And uh, for those who don't may, may not remember Eric Buell, he had a partnership with Harley making race motorcycles. He made Buell sport bikes, you know, the XB9, XB9R, um, some pretty compelling motorcycles. He had some very cutting edge or non-traditional ideas about motorcycle development, radial brakes, uh, the frame being the frame of the motorcycle being the gas tank, the oil was in the swing arm, um, a lot of mass centralization. He's developing an, an e-bike and he's kind of saying he wants something to be a little bit more urban friendly. So he's going after like a top speed of like 85 miles an hour, 140 kilometers an hour, 240 kilometer range, it's about 150 miles. Um, 50 liters of storage in the gas tank, put your full face helmet in there. Um, it has the rear hub drive, which, you know, is simpler. It allows for a bigger battery. And, and I think a lot of the design from what I'm reading is the motorcycle is designed to be modular is something that you can kind of upgrade and grow with as you go. Comes in a couple different colors. Um, and I believe the price tag on it is going to be right around $12,000. So, um, one thing that's really exciting about this is that it's being developed by a motorcycle guy. As a motorcyclist, I'm really interested in what um, a motorcycle guy will come up with. So I think uh, the fuel flow, I think they're calling it fuel, F-U-E-L-L, -L, like Buell only with an F. I think that's going to be one uh, that I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to. I really want to see uh, what comes of that. And 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 who knows? Maybe, maybe they'll send us one and we can do like three or four videos about the, the fuel. I think, anyway, cool bike. Yeah, so I'm, I think it's actually a really good thing. Like... I think a lot of motorcycle companies tend to fill themselves with just motorcycle guys. 
and and it's really welcome to have that expertise. I actually think it's really useful to have non-motorcycle guys. I agree. Like they might see problems that we're we're so used to looking at the gas tank, for example. Yeah. That it's a gas tank. There's always this going to be this hump between the seat and the handlebars. Yeah. And you get someone who's not a motorcycle person, and they're like, "Well, why?" Right? Like like the Vespa, the guy who invented the Vespa hated motorcycles, you know. And like, look what we got, right? Yeah. Like I I you know I, this is something that I think about a lot with motorcycles is that. I think we get used to that, that startup ritual. And wh what I mean by that is we get the gear on, right? We get all of our gear, the helmet, the gloves, the jacket, you know, the, 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 the boots, everything. Yeah, don't forget your key in your pocket. That's right. The key in the pocket, right? And so you put your gloves on first and then you're like, oh, damn it, I've, I left my keys in my pocket. And like, you know, you think about it, you got to put your key in, you got to turn it on, then you got to turn the switch on and then you have to pull in the, the clutch. And then you have to um, uh, hit the start button. I mean, compare that to a car, right? And the number of steps that it takes from just, you know, if you're at your office and you're just working, like you're sitting at a computer, how many steps does it take to get from that to on the road, right? And it's something where it's like, I think I just got used to it after a while. And it's, it wasn't something that I thought about, but it wasn't until someone who wasn't into motorcycles just said, how are you okay with like so many steps? No, it is a hassle. And how many like people who are listening or watching right now had some point they're like, uh, I'm just going to take the car. Yeah. And you want to take the motorcycle, but you're like, got to get the jacket. And like, it is like this, it's a ritual, yep. which is kind of, I take the scooter a lot because that takes out a lot of steps. Yep. I'll ride in a t-shirt, you yep. know, like I'll ride in sneakers. Yeah. Like, I mean. This is, I mean, it's a small thing, but like, you know, I, what I try to think of is like, is there any way that we can actually eliminate even like one step from that ritual? And if you think about electric motorcycle, you don't actually have to hit the start button really. Right. Right. You turn it on and then you go. Yeah. Right. You just turn it on and you should be able to go. I think some of the bikes might actually have a start button, but it, it feels like a vestigial thing that like, it just makes you feel better or something, you know, it's like, they well, have even this like a tachometer, right? Like, yeah. do you need a tachometer? Like, like what they're putting on the gauge? Yeah. It's like, it, it really doesn't matter. Right. Um. One thing I will say that I think with electric motorcycles is that we should, um, I, I don't know if we've really talked about much, but like the throttle, right? Oh, that is an interesting. Well, so the throttle for a, a gas bike, you know, it, it takes like, you know, you can use this much of like from zero to 60 or whatever, first gear, you know, your throttle, you know, zero to a hundred percent only controls that portion of it. And then like your sixth gear is like, you know, a hundred to whatever your top speed is, right? And it just handles that. But for electric, it actually handles the entire range of that speed and stuff. So like one thing I was kind of curious about is like, you know, do we, like a quarter turn seems like it would be crazy on an electric motorcycle. You know what I mean? Yeah, but like, are you gonna have to like stop and like- That's Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, there's a couple of motorcycle companies. There's one in China. I tried to look it up before. I couldn't find the name, but he's actually putting three and four speed transmissions into the electric motorcycles because he says shifting is a part of riding. I love shifting. Everything I own, with the exception of the Zuma, is a manual transmission. In the automotive world, they're doing these things where you can, you basically take the gas engine out and you bolt the electric engine to the bell housing of the transmission, yeah. right? Yeah. I love that. I love that because that kind of like, that's a very interesting point. Like we've all probably driven a Tesla or some electric car, pretty intuitive. A foot pedal is a little different than it's yeah yeah it's like you know how much 
you know, it's like, how much risk control do you have? You know what I mean? And for some of the guys that like, you know, I, I just kind of wonder, are, do we need to actually do a, a true transmission or can we even just say, like we have a switch that actually says, all right, we're going to control like this portion of the actual like. Oh, so it's not even like a transmission to be like a high, low range, yeah, like on those old dirt bikes when you were a kid, you would flip yeah. down and hit the switch. That's a really interesting thought, right? Because one of the other problems too with motorcycles, the e-motorcycle thing is there's not really room for multiple engines, right? You have one motor, maybe not engine, engine motor. There's people that have strong feelings on it, but you, you only have room for one, right? And a lot of the cars might have two. This is our low speed motor. This is our high speed motor. Yep. Motorcycle only has one. So it seems like a transmission would be, even if it's as simple as a little, or it does it automatically at a certain speed, yeah. or the user can choose, yeah. right? That's something else we don't t really talk about. Like I love torquey motorcycles. V4s, I think greatest motorcycle engine of all time. Twins, I like. An, an electric engine can be whatever you want it to be. Maybe you don't like a lot of torque, you know? Like it can change the power delivery. That's, yeah. Like, I mean, I think of all the, you know, it's like, when, I, when I'm thinking about motorcycles and I'm thinking about the future, a lot of times what I do is that I look at a competition board and I think in the past we always put uh, like direct competition. So if you're designing like a 600, you know, motorcycle, you would put like CBR, J6R, R6, right? Uh, 6R, this uh, ZX6R. You would kind of put like all those competitors like in a line and stuff. But so much of what we're doing now is like, we'll look at it and say, all right, what is actually competing for the time of these customers? So for a younger customer, we might say, all right, they've got their iPhone. That's actually taking, I mean, they're not cheap, right? iPhone, you, you compare that to the cost of like a Saran or something like that. It's a big chunk of that, right? Or you look at the, the price of a uh, PlayStation 5, right? And you look at these things and these are all the things that are actually competing for their time and their money, right? Their interest. And um, what are the things that they really like about it? It's like they really like modding, you know, like personalizing the things that they have, right? And actually tweaking those things. So, you know, kind of going back to what we we're saying about like working on your bike, wrenching on it and stuff. I think maybe I want to kind of take a step back and say like, you know, this, this generation, it's not so much that they're not wrenching on their bike. Maybe they're just wrenching in a different way. Right. You know, like they, they just kind of want to go in there and kind of tweak these settings and stuff like that. And having that electric drivetrain, like you said, like it gives you like an almost infinite amount of tweakability, sure. you know, and I, I definitely think that's appealing to that. that well, and you could even look at it as, you know, I want a motorcycle to look a certain way, right? And, and I think this kind of goes back to, you know, like kind of a non-traditional thing, you know? If, you know, Zero's kind of doing the subscription model, I think we can all agree we are so tired of subscriptions, monthly subscriptions for everything. But what if we looked at it a different way and that you walked in and here's kind of like a framework, right? And then you go to the, to the catalog and you're like, but I want these panels, I want these handlebars, right? Because everything can be super modular. It, it's, you don't have, you're not dealing with clutch cables and throttle cables, it's plugs. Yeah. So you can kind of make like an, a Lego motorcycle to a certain extent that would allow the user to, that's mine. That's actually, yeah, that's a great point. That is actually a fantastic point because I mean, I look at the success that Harley's had, right? Well, they've got their thick accessories Bible Right. I think they call it the Bible. Right. And, um, you know, I think that's the thing is that like so much of this is like, you know, this is this thing is like something that they want to represent themselves. Right. Like every single motorcycle that I've ever seen is like it's it's a statement of who that person is. Right. Like their personality always comes through when you start talking to somebody, they won't shut up about it. Right. That's if you ever want to have a conversation with a motorcyclist, just ask them about their bike. But it's like 
it's a really, I actually think it's a really important part of the identity of a motorcyclist, right? I think I actually, I actually do think that that's part of like the experience of it. And it's something that like, it's, it's just part of it. Right. So yeah, like the, the ability to actually have like these modular parts and stuff like that, I think is, it makes for like an amazing marketplace. Yeah. Well, you think about my dad worked on car dealerships when I was a wee lad. And back then you would go in and say, I want this truck with this engine and I want this transmission and I want this rear end. And you basically, you ordered the vehicle, right? I would love to do that. You know, like even like we were talking about, you know, the Aprilia. Well, I really like the Tuono, but I want the forged wheels. I don't really care about the mechatronic suspension, but I would love to have, you know, like how awesome would that be to be like, I, I get the parts that I want. I don't care about the parts I don't care about. You know, I don't care about cruise control. I don't care two wits about cruise control, you know, yeah. but somebody else might. And that might be far more important to them than the forged wheels. You know, we're living in a streaming world now where it's like, you know, before cable, you know, you, you ordered cable and you got what you got, right? You had 300 channels of sports. Yeah. It's like 95% stuff that you don't care about. But then like those handful of channels that you really care about, you know, those were what were important to you. And I think, you know, kind of moving over to like having a selection between Netflix and Hulu and all these other streaming platforms and stuff. I think that's actually like what people are used to and what they want, you know? So yeah, if we're able to deliver that in the industry, I think that would actually be a huge win, not just for the industry, but also for the customer because, um, you know, let's look at the trends. Like that's where it's definitely like, it's not where it's going, but that's where it is. It is where it's going. And if you look at a traditional motorcycle to have this kind of cut and paste kind of design, it's very problematic right? Because you have this engine and all these mechanical components that have to interact with each other. Yeah. Now we don't necessarily have that, yeah. right? And that would be, but that also kind of brings up that, you know, you talked about this when we were talking about this earlier, the future of the dealership, right? And, you know, dealerships, love them or hate them or whatever. When I need a tire, I need to be able to go get a tire, right? And looking at e-motorcycles, a lot of them have rear hub drive, right? That means the motor is in the rear wheel. Okay. I need a new tire. What does that look like for me, the home mechanic? Do I take my whole engine effectively down to the motorcycle shop where the tire monkey sits there and bangs on it with a hammer? Right? Like, yeah, I think it, it'll come down to how they want to construct it because I think that they can make it so the, the wheel itself can detach from the motor and then, and then you could take that down, but it does kind of become uh, that does kind of become a challenge. E-bikes, e e-bicycles, yeah. right? You would think like, I'm more familiar with those because they've been around for a long time. My dad has a, a rad bike, right? Hub drive. And he's, he wanted to change something on it. I was like, oh, how hard could it be? I'm a bicycle guy. It takes me 30 seconds to take the rear wheel off a bicycle. It took me almost an hour to get the rear wheel off of his rad bike because there was all these things and all these cables and all these connections that don't I mean, it could be the design of the rad bike. It could be that it's a new, a new thing. It wasn't as straightforward as you think it would be, right? Yeah, so I, I, think, I think they could probably design around it. I think that they could actually make the hub so it attaches the motor in a way that you could remove it without too much hassle. But I think a, a bigger thing would just be that, like, I'm, I'm personally not a huge fan of, of hub motors just because you're putting so much unsprung weight on there, right? right? And um, another big, big issue with that is that if you want a different gear ratio, you basically like that's not possible with that and really the motors they're going to have to be engineered to be um hub motors because i think 
just the kind of speeds that they're going at. I mean, look at the reduction that Zero uses on their motors. They have a tiny, tiny front sprocket and then a huge rear sprocket, right? So they're, they're actually running a very, very aggressive gear reduction going from the motor to the rear wheel. So if you have that motor just going straight through the rear wheel, uh, wheel, like you don't have that opportunity to get gear reduction, right? So you're not really operating like at the, at the optimum, right? It, it's not gonna be an optimum setup for that, right? So it's a trade-off, right? It's in terms of packaging, it gives you a lot more space for the battery and the chassis. Um, it's gonna be probably cheaper overall. You're not gonna have to worry about a belt or a chain but for me, at least, I think it has too many, um, I think you're sacrificing too much for that. Right. The, with, back to the e-bicycles, I think they call it mid-drive, right? Where the motor is basically in your bottom bracket, it's at your cranks, right? Where you're pedaling. You still have a traditional derailleur and the shifter, so you still kind of have that transmission. Riding the hub drive versus a mid-drive, the mid-drive is far more intuitive. It works better. The hub drive, I could be in the hardest gear the bike has, and if I pedal lightly, it's just going to give me full power, yeah. right? Because it doesn't know what gear I'm in, where mid-drive understands how much I'm putting into it, and it just goes to the rear wheel in a much more traditional way. Yeah. But then you start thinking about the battery, which I didn't even think about that. Now I have a motor and a battery that I have to put in this space, and until batteries get smaller... Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, going back to what we were talking about with the solid state, you know, I think solid state batteries, we're probably going to have like smaller ones and maybe like sacrifice a little bit of range on a solid state battery, but then it gives us the, abil the ability to package, you know, a, uh, a good sized battery with the motor in the middle. And possibly even two motors, like that might be something, you know, that, because the motors aren't that big. Look at the live wire, the things, the motors right there along the bottom. It's not that big. Yeah, they're not that big. And then also, uh, actually, you know, I, I think that this was used a lot, like maybe 10 years ago, but mass centralization was such a big thing in like the late 2000s, early, you know, 2010s. Uh, you know, every single bike manufacturer, they were just talking about mass centralized, mass centralized. You know, when you think about a hub motor, you're basically putting all that weight in the worst possible place. Right. Right. The only way that you could make it worse is if it's spinning. Right. <laughs> so as long as the motor's not spinning, at least it's not the worst possible place, but it's close. Right. So um, I think, you know, going back to the solid state batteries, like, you know, I think once we reach that point and we could actually optimize that package inside the middle of the bike, it's going to be better for handling. It's going to be better for just overall, like, um, I think it's going to be a more enjoyable ride. What if we, I'm curious about your thought on this. What if we took a, a look at the scooter and the swing arm is effectively the motor, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, I mean, there's, there would still be like a, a, a spider drive, right? Like a shaft drive on a motorcycle, but then the swing arm itself can be this long tubular spinny thing, right? Yep. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, actually, I think that a swing arm mounted motor, it does make sense. I think in some situations and stuff. So if the motor is small enough, um, you know, then you just have a semi unsprung weight, right? And I think that it, actually it could be a really good compromise for some packages. It's going to be lower cost and you're going to be able to control things like that chain tension or the belt tension a lot easier because it's all just one unit, you know, and you don't have the motor or you don't have the swing arm moving, you know, in a different arc than like what the motor is and stuff, right. you know? So it, that could actually be like a really, really good situation for the right um, package. I have seen a couple of motorcycles that do that. I, I don't remember the names of them like off the top of my head. I'll have to look uh, for those, but I think for the right situation, yeah, that could be perfect. There was one like from the like post-World War II that the, 
I believe that it was hilarious. I think the exhaust pipe and the motor were all the swing arm and it was only on one side. And it was this little, and it was a gas little thing. It was a tiny little thing, but it was yeah. hilarious to see like this motor pipe come out the one side of the. Um, oh, wait, so like was the exhaust, was that actually structural? Yeah, this, the exhaust was structural. Yeah. yeah. Like huh. talk about thinking outside the box, right? But yeah. that's something else. Like we didn't even think about that. And you know, like um, the exhaust pipe is such a big part of the des of what a motorcycle looks like, mm -hmm. right? You know, like go back to Harley's, you have the fishtails, you look at like the, the 916, oh, we're gonna put it up under the thing, you know, there's no more of that. Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, I think it's, I, I for one am kind of happy about it because then I don't have to worry about like melted like saddlebags or anything like that, right? Melted your boot. Yeah, it's like, it, you know, for me, I mean, I have a love hate with it because like, I won't lie, like I love the sound of a great exhaust. You know, it's like, especially like a V4 exhaust, it sounds awesome. It sounds like a MotoGP bike. But, um, you know, for the, on the flip side, like there are so many times where it's just so inconvenient, right? It's like, there's a lot of heat that comes off of it. It melts everything that you own. And like, you know, it is like a super, super loud thing. It's, it's always been like this asymmetry Right for a lot of bikes, where you look at it from the back, and you're just like, ah, uh, just like it feels just a little well, bit. Saddlebags on the touring bikes, right? Like yeah. this saddlebag is half the size of that saddlebag. Exactly. Bag. Yeah. The early GSs, BMW, the exhaust pipe was on the same side as the center stand. So every time you tried to put the thing on the center stand, you would burn your hand and your arm trying to get it up on the center stand. So when they finally moved the exhaust to the other side, I think there was rejoice, rejoicing around the world that you didn't have to burn yourself every time you put the thing on the center stand. All the GS riders flipped their helmets up and rejoiced. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> With the burn scars on their forearms, you know? <laughs> but yeah, like it's, there's like so many advantages, but then you start thinking about what would the dealer experience be like? We made the joke about the, the, the tire guy, but if your motorcycle dealerships now seem to survive on maintenance, yep. right? Like valve adjustments and oil changes. Now that's gone, right? Yeah. How do they, you know, I don't think anybody's talking. We talk about the, the vehicle a lot, we don't necessarily talk about the infrastructure to support this. Are we all just going to order them from Amazon? And then what happens when we need a tire? Right, right. I mean, I think, you know, like, you know, we had this chat a little while ago where, you know, the smart dealerships are going to, they're going to adapt and they're going to figure out, you know, how do we serve this new market, right? But I mean, uh, you know, gas stations, like what are going to happen to gas stations, right? Like there are so many of them all over, like, you know, every single city and stuff. What's going to happen to gas stations? You know, I think back to things like, uh, you know, they used to have like those blue mailboxes where you could drop off like your bills and stuff like that, right? They used to be everywhere, right? And I, I you know, it's like I struggle to think of like where hardly any of them are now or even like pay phones, right? As soon as cell phones came in, like they just disappeared. Where's Superman supposed to change into is, is exactly, like... right? It's like they're all disappearing. But I, I just wonder like, you know, these gas stations, like what are they doing to adapt? Right? Are they just going to turn into recharge stations, or are they going to have to shift to something different? Uh, you know, like the the dealerships. I mean, so much of their model has like over time become you know service based, like you were saying, right? So if that part gets eliminated, where we don't have valve changes, we don't have oil changes, it's just brakes and tires. You know, it's like is that enough for them to live on, or are they going to have to um, adjust and actually offer more things because? You know, to me, um, motorcycle is much more about, um, I'm going to go off on a personal rant about motorcycles to me, they're not just about the object. And I think that's a, I think that's one problem that I see with a lot of manufacturers that like, they're not looking at like, they're just looking at the motorcycle as an object, but 
it's just so much more than that, right? It's it's a lifestyle. It's a community. Um, you know, it's like I don't I don't know that many people who just want to ride by themselves. They usually want to ride with a group, right? It's it's a strangely social uh, sport that is also can be isolating at times, right? Because sometimes it's just you and your helmet, right? And it's just a man with his thoughts. But it it really is such a social thing, right? And we all get together, we all ride together, we all talk about our motorcycles together. But like, I think the dealership is going to have to sort of look at that and say like, how do we sort of take that and make it more of like a social thing, right? I see people doing like, you know, dealerships doing like arranged rides and stuff where everybody kind of gets together. But I think they're going to have to actually step it up even more. Right. Right. Because like, like that alone is probably not going to make up for any kind of lost revenue that they have from, you know, the loss of their service. Yeah. You almost kind of look at, I think, I like the the concept of saying like the the smart dealerships will survive by being adaptable, right? The dinosaur didn't survive by being the biggest and strongest, right? The dinosaur didn't survive because it wasn't adaptable. You know, if you look at Ace Cafe in London, right? What if that was your dealership, right? Like it's a cafe, it's a restaurant, it's a gathering place. It's like got racing heritage. It's got all these things kind of going on that that's where you go to London as a motorcyclist, you want to go visit the Ace Cafe. Absolutely. Right? And just like you and I, like we, you know, where are we hanging out? We're hanging out next to the motorcycles, right? Like we want to like, like talk about them. And, and all of us have been riding along by yourself and you see another motorcycle and you're like, buddy, yeah. I am a friend. And you, you'll ride together, even though you don't know each other, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll kind of like, ah, oh, you wave, you know, like, and so I think capitalizing on that, that it's, you know, and you said it earlier too, that once you ride the thing, you're like, oh my gosh, this is special. This, this is not a car. This is not a bicycle. There's something magical about a motorcycle. There really is. There's something that can't be quantifiable. Other people who have that and know that and experience that, there's an instant friendship. Absolutely. You know? Yep. Yep. I mean, you know, I, I honestly feel like, you know, especially after the pandemic, I think people are just hungry for gatherings. I think people are actually really, really, I know that I am. I know that I've been sort of like just hungry for just, just to kind of get out and like talk to other like-minded people. It's like, talk about bikes. They don't even have to be like-minded. And, you know, it's like, they could be riding some other bike that I, you know, I'm not particularly a fan of, but I would still love to talk to them about it. Right. Just any of that. But I think these dealerships, yeah, like they're going to have to look at things like coffee shops, restaurants, but just sort of make it like, you know, how do we make it a destination? Right. Where it's like, they're going to come and spend their money and like, we're going to all share in this thing that we all love. Right. And like my, my friend Dave was saying, it's like, you know, this should be easy. Right. Like we, it's the coolest thing on the planet is to ride these motorcycles. Like it shouldn't be that hard. You know what I mean? I know it's harder than that, but I'm just saying that like, you know, if we're creative about it, you know, it's like we can not just survive, but we can thrive. Well, and I think something that a lot of people may not understand about motorcycles is there's no money in motorcycles. Very few people get rich off of motorcycles. Everything is off a slim margin, right? You go buy your $20,000 motorcycle and you're like, I just wrote that dealer a $20,000 check. He might only be making $500 off of that sale. And how much time was involved in that, right? He had to get the bike, open it, the box, put it together, have the, the, the warranty support and the computers to talk to it, the salesman to talk to you for the hour that, you know, you start adding all this up and like, everybody is operating on these razor thin margins. And I think as the consumer, I think if we recognize that, I think you end up with a better experience when you interact with the dealer. And if the dealer is a little bit more upfront that, you know, 
there's not a big margin. And dealers that play the long game, not necessarily, I'm gonna upsell to this motorcycle because I can make 50 more bucks off this sale, but that, that customer may never come back again. I think we're gonna have to see a mind shift as, or a, a whole paradigm shift as how these things are gonna survive and think more long-term. You know, thinking of, speaking of paradigm shift, I do, you know, I do kind of wonder, looking at the future motorcycle dealerships, you know, I look at things like Airbnb and it flipped hotels upside down. And I look at Turo, you know, and it's like, you know, what it's doing to like Hertz and other like car rental agencies. And I just kind of wonder if there is like going to be a future where I, you know, I can't really imagine it right now, but could something come in that actually just totally flips that dealership model upside down, right? Where they're looking and saying, you know what, this is not sustainable anymore, but we have like this new way of doing it and stuff, right? So I, I don't know what form it's going to come in, but I kind of have a feeling like we're going to have something like an air, like something like that where it really flips. A decentralized kind of yeah. system maybe. And that's kind of scary to me as a touring rider because I can't count the number of times like in the, I need a tire, yeah. you know, like where's the nearest dealership? I need help, yeah. you know? And if, if that network is gone, like I know dealerships can be problematic. I love, we need them. I, I feel like we need something to serve that. There's stuff, not everything can be ordered from Amazon and wait two days for it to show up. Yep. I'm not capable of fixing everything that could possibly be broken. I agree. I just wonder if this, if it's gonna be, instead of like mega dealerships, I kind of wonder if that's gonna be a little bit harder in the future and if it's gonna be more like specialty shops and stuff, or maybe even, you know, in, in California where I live, you know, it's like we have these guys who are like the tire specialists and stuff, and they have like either a warehouse or even rent out their garage. They're actually really competent at, at what they're doing. You know, it's like they're, they're slinging these tires and stuff, and, uh, they, you know, they, they mount them for you and stuff. And I just kind of wonder, is it going to have to take something like that? Because the other thing is this, you know, it's like the number of dealerships that we see, like, across the United States, like, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the total numbers are right now, you know, but, like, I just kind of wonder, is like, are they, you know, if they dwindle and stuff, who's going to take up that mantle? Like, uh, you know, if there's not a... Uh, a brand, you know, if if you have a brand of motorcycle and they don't happen to have it in your city, for example. Right. Like Aprilia. Our, our, we, there's not a single Aprilia dealer in this state. We got to link, we got to cross state lines. Oh, uh, like, you know? I just, I'm just, anybody out there want to start an Aprilia dealership in my home state? I would be so thankful. But like, yeah, it's like, dude, if we could do like, you know, it just sort of makes me wonder though. It's like, there are a lot of places that are not served by a dealership, right? And that's another problem that we have is that like, you know, you can get a car like in almost any town or city and stuff. Motorcycle, that's not necessarily the case, right? Especially like if, if you want a specific brand. And I just kind of wonder like, you know, it, um, you know, Airbnbs, one thing that was like really interesting about Airbnb is that like it became a lot more granular where, it, you know, if you wanted to get a room in some place that traditionally, you know, no one would set a hotel up there no one would have it you know if you wanted to rent a miso silo in the middle of like new mexico or something like that hi doodle <laughs> now you can do it right so it's like uh um i you know yeah i wonder if there is something to it you know it's like if i don't think that traditional um dealerships are necessarily going away so that's not what i'm saying like i think the smart ones will survive and stuff and they'll adapt but i i wonder if there's going to be something else that's going to be like a little bit more, uh, I don't know the word for it. It's like, you know. Well, looking what... at the Airbnb model, right? Because yeah. like, we've probably all seen an Airbnb by now. Yeah. It's 
kind of more personal. It's kind of more private, right? Yeah. You're in a house. You're you don't worry about parking this big parking lot. Someone breaking into your car in the middle of the night. You're usually in a neighborhood. Yep. It's you may not get all the services you get from like a traditional hotel. There may be concierge and a swimming pool. Maybe there is, depending on the Airbnb. But I kind of almost prefer the Airbnb, even though it's a little bit more money. I kind of like that I'm kind of off in a corner. Yeah, there's that certain like intimacy to it and stuff, right? And, um, you know, I, I think one thing is that like, uh, you know, the rating system is great because like it'll, it basically just eliminates like the, the jokers and stuff like that, right? So, I mean, if you go and get like, you know, serviced by somebody that just doesn't know what they're doing, you know, you ding them on the, the ratings and stuff and eventually like those guys are gone. Well, and honestly, I do kind of like the the rating the other direction. That Uber passenger is a horrible person and then now they can't get Uber rides anymore. It's actually fantastic, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, because like all of us who worked in the industry, there has been that customer that you're like, oh my, I can't satisfy this person. They take up massive amounts of my time. You know, like a little bit of two-way accountability. Yeah, yeah. I I agree. You know, it's like, I think... I think it's a good way to kind of keep people just being human to each other, you know, because like, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I think of it this way, like we're, we're writing these things that, you know, if we're not careful, they can be dangerous. Right. Um, I'm not going to say that they're safe, but like, we're all kind of in it together. And it's like, sometimes I feel like some people, they just make it harder on themselves, you know? And it's like, I'm like, dude, just treat, you know, it's like your dealer is like your friend. Yeah. Yeah, and, and if they aren't, you can find a, a different dealer, right? There, there are some crooked dealers out there. We've all experienced that. But sometimes that casts a big shadow over the great dealerships. And, and I have lifelong friends from dealerships I worked at or worked with that I hang out with them. I go to barbecues at their house, yeah. right? Because of friendships I built through a dealership. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, if you allow it, they can be your best friend. You know, and I and I mean that like on more than just like a customer like uh, seller relationship. I mean like on a on a personal level, they can really be your best friend. So I think it's just important that just people remember like you know they they're of course there to make a profit, but like they're not going to make a profit if they don't make you happy. Right, and and understanding that motorcycles are a, a such a sliver. Yeah. There's not a lot of room. Yeah. You're not getting you're not getting ripped off on that. I mean, you might be. But it's highly unlikely you're getting ripped off on that tire. It's highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. Yeah, yeah, they just, they, they're not going to survive if they do that. Yeah. You know? I mean, also, it's, it's a small enough community right now that if you do do that, like, that word spreads like wildfire. Oh, yeah. yeah, you're gone. Yeah, you don't last. Yeah, it's just, yeah, we're yeah. itty bitty. It's, you know, we call it Small Lake City. Like, I pretty much, it's, it's hilarious. you like, you know everybody. You know, you know, like, especially the motorcycle community. Yeah. I'm, you know, the people I go to the track with, the people I ride with, they're some of my oldest friends now. Yeah. Way more meaningful relationships than high school, mm -hmm. you know, because these are people I've shared this, this interaction with for 25 years now. The same people. I know how they ride, you know? I know, I know about their kids. I know about everything, you know? You know, I think, and that's the thing is like, you know, when you ride with people, like it just gives you a lot of time to talk with people and just kind of get to know them and stuff, you know? So it is, yeah, it's like we were talking about how social this sport is. It is social, you know, and you do get to know like people like, you know, the good and bad about them, but you really get to know them. So I think like the electric motorcycle kind of, there's a lot of problems in the motorcycle industry. We can all agree there's things about it we don't like. This electric revolution, I think kind of gives us an opportunity to really assess what works, what doesn't work, where we can improve, because things are gonna get shuffled no matter what. 
right? The system's not staying the same. It's changing. And so it's kind of exciting to think maybe we can make it change for the better. We can get rid of some of the stuff we don't like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that's the thing is that this actually, you know, we actually, we don't get that many opportunities to reset, right? Like, just think about life. Like, how many times do you actually get to, like, have a reset and stuff? We actually have that opportunity now, right? So let's not squander it, right? Let's do something with this opportunity that we have because, like, you know, uh, it's going to change a lot of things, you know? And I, I think for a lot of people, change is scary. I'm not, you know, it's like there are things about it that I'm definitely nervous about, right? Um, but I think it can also be like really exciting and positive as well, right? So I hope that we can kind of take it uh, a positive, like look at it and to say like, how can we actually make this better for like this next generation of products, right? How, how do we make it a more enjoyable experience for everybody like in the future and stuff? We have the opportunity now, you know? Um, we do know that like it is changing because, um, you know, whether we want it to or not, you know, uh, automotive often leads motorcycle, right? It's just the way it is because they have bigger budgets and a lot of the things, you know, they have so much in common that uh, we kind of get tugged along with the automotive side. So when you see the automotive side going to electrification, like, you know, it's just kind of hard to deny that that's where motorcycle is going and stuff. But I don't want to look at it as like we're being dragged there kicking and streaming. I really want to really hope that people can look at it and to say this is like an opportunity you know to make something special you know and we all have a vote in it right we all uh, vote with our dollars you know but like also you know participating you know it's like if there's something that you like or don't like you know it's like talk about it you know it's like love to hear it and stuff you know so um i'm excited about it you know uh i love gas but um, at the same time, like I definitely see the opportunity that we have with electric. Well, and I, I think I'm, there's a lot of people who are so afraid of the change. Gas isn't going anywhere, right? Right. Tour bikes, there's no reasonable way to make them. I think we're going to see gas engines for a long time. Gas stations aren't going to go away, probably not even in our lifetime, right? But we are going to see that shift, and we are going to see that change. So I think on one side, relax. Yeah, it'll right. be it'll be okay. Exactly. And kind of like look at what the exciting things it can bring. Yeah. If we could have like the best of like both worlds, I mean, you know, for me, it's like, if it's possible to have that best of both worlds, like I'm, I'm for it, you know, because we already have like awesome gas bikes. Right. And it's like, if we can add awesome electric bikes to that as well, I just, I don't, I don't see a downside to that. Yeah. And that's, you know, like, I think kind of the final thought is in the nineties when you and I were coming up, Mm -hmm. right. hundred horsepower in a motorcycle was unimaginable. Right. It was like, who, how could they possibly come up with 100 horsepower? Right. Tires, we, we were running bias ply tires. Yeah. They had no grip. Right. Like they were the suspension were damper rods. We had no control over the rate of how the forks moved. And now look at just in our lifetime, 220 horsepower, mechatronic adaptable suspension that adjusts as you're going fly by wire throttle that is so precise and amazing, you know, service intervals that. Yeah, what the new Multistrada is like, it's like ridiculous. It's like most people will never adjust the valves on that motorcycle. So imagine what electric's going to do. Look at how fast electric has already moved. You know, like how long ago had you never even seen an electric car? Now they're everywhere. Imagine what the electric motorcycles are going to look like in 10 years. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm an optimist and I, I can't wait to see what the future brings. Well, Greg, thanks so much for spending time with us in the 
the hallowed halls of Canyon Chasers corporate headquarters. Thank you for having me over. And, Appreciate uh, it. We'll have you over again because like we we talked for we we chatted for an hour before we even turned the cameras on. That's <laughs> so. Right on. Thanks so much. Thank you.